The scripture reading this morning comes from selected uh, passages from the book of Amos. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, you who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make an ephah small, and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. This is God's word. Good morning. Well, that was cheery, wasn't it? For the record, uh, if chapter 4 said to the cows of Bashan, and it said, uh, you bulls of Bashan, to make it male, and said, say to your wives, bring that we may drink, that would still not be good. Okay? So, I'm just throwing that out there uh, by way of introduction. Uh, My name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Good to see many of you today. Or so many of you, I should say. Good to see many of you. Some of you, not so good to see. Not what I meant to say. Um, We're in the middle of a series, as many of you are aware. We're coming actually to the end of it. 
uh, we're spending the fall in the minor prophets, so-called minor prophets, because most of them are shorter books. But as you heard Susan read, uh, this one in particular, all of them to some extent, this one in particular has some very stark things to say to us. Um, And as we've been saying, by way of introduction, uh, we can view our circumstances, view our life through the lens of our theology or through the lens of what we know or believe about God, or vice versa, we can view God through the lens of our circumstances or what's happening in our lives. Uh, and we're going to see, or I want to mention in just a minute, what I think is going on here and, and, and why it led to the behavior that Amos is so angry about. To give you a little bit of background on the book of Amos, his preaching is set against the backdrop of the reigns of the king Jeroboam II in the north in Israel and Uzziah, the king of Judah, in the south. And so uh, he was talking to both kingdoms at once uh, in this book. Both kingdoms are experiencing incredible success, incredible prosperity, material wealth is at an all-time high, the economy's flourishing, uh, and through military conquests, they were expanding their territory uh, well, un, in an unparalleled, un, uh, it, it was unlike anything they had ever experienced before. The problem was, as a result, a very recklessly extravagant elite class had developed uh, in Israel. And the problem for these people was that they were relating to God or had begun to relate to God through the lens of their success and prosperity. The people of Israel in the book of Amos saw material blessing and military success through the lens of their own work, not God's grace. And so as a result, they forgot him. They, they meticulously did their religious duty, as you heard there uh, in some of those passages Susan read. And they did that so that God would keep his duty and bless them. But the funny thing is, that's the way the ironic thing, I guess I should say, that's the way the pagan peoples surrounding Israel thought and related to their gods. And yet, that's the way Amos finds God's people relating to him. This is the God who had rescued them from slavery. He had made them a people in the first place. And he had given them the land that they were now abusing uh, and, and, uh, and, and terrorizing the poor and the needy. Uh, as a result. One Bible commentator summarizes the book like this. He says, The people of God had fallen asleep in the comfort of the privileges of salvation and needed to be jolted into the awareness that the only assured certainty of the possession of those privileges was the evidence of a life committed without reserve to being holy as their Savior God is holy. Now, I've I got to make a disclaimer uh, before we get into the outline here. The tone of this book is pretty harsh. Uh, that's why I said what I said. I mean, this is very cheery. I'm sure you know everybody's encouraged now, having read these words. The Lord is not pleased with his people. Uh, and so through the prophet, he has some very hard things to say. And I just have to admit or, or confess to you that if I preached this text and I didn't brush up against anger you didn't feel a little bit of anger coming out of me, I'd probably be sinning. 
Because to see injustice or corruption and not be angered about it is sinful. To talk about it and not get worked up is, is sinful. But it's also possible to go too far and be sinfully angry and self-righteous and to use the pulpit or the music stand in our case for that. Uh, and I don't want to do that. Uh, I asked Drew to pray for me this week and I said, please pray that I would be angry like Amos and not self-righteously yell at the congregation on Sunday. And, of course, he's not here, and so I'll, I'll, hopefully he'll listen to the recording and tell me whether he assessed me as yelling or just plain angry like Amos. Reflecting on the anger of Jesus, a theologian named B.B. Warfield said this, and this really has stuck with me, and it stuck with me again this week uh, as I read it and thought about this passage or this book. It would be impossible for a moral being, he says, to stand indifferent and unmoved in the presence of wrong. The emotions of indignation and anger belong, therefore, to the very self-expression of a moral being and cannot be lacking in the presence of wrong. That should be all of us. The truth is, this is a subject about which I'm very passionate, and I long to see us take seriously, so please, please pray. Pray for us as a church. Uh, Pray for me as we work through this that we would seek wisdom and that we desire to help one another move toward obedience. So look at the outline uh, as we go through here. I want to look under, or excuse me, look at the title of justice, the subject of justice under three headings. Justice abandoned. Okay, what does it look like when justice is abandoned? How had the people become so corrupt that Amos is talking to calling to repent. Secondly, justice demanded. What does God's demand for justice mean? What do we learn about his character in his justice? What's his response to the people's abandoning of justice? And then lastly, how do we practice it? How does being transformed by the justice of God produce just living? So those three things, justice abandoned, justice demanded, and justice practiced. So let's begin first with justice Abandoned. What does it look like? How, how had the people become so corrupt? Well, there's two major things going on, and I'm going to focus uh, at various points today on various passages. So if you reference your worship folder or just open it up like this, you might find it more helpful. Uh, the passages are over here matching up with, with the outline. So here I want to take a look at chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Okay, Let me read those again to us. Well, let me start with four. He says, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances? The word that Amos uses here for the poor or the needy means something like an uninfluential person, someone who is easily pushed around. Um, These people were being trampled, brought to an end. Amos says they are literally disappearing from the land through the injustice of Israel. Now, the scriptures are filled with calls to care for and look after the most vulnerable. If you've uh, read much of the Bible at all, you've probably seen this. People like or groups like widows, orphans, immigrants, refugees, single women, the elderly. And 
the, the, the fact was, those groups had no social power or influence in ancient societies. In fact, if you think about it, for the most part, they don't today still, right? So according to the Bible, the justness of a society is evaluated by how it treats these groups. And any neglect shown to the needs of the members of these sets of people is, in the Scripture's eyes, a violation of justice. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social status and in turn demands that we do too. Now more on that uh, in just a few minutes. Israel was so addicted to gain that they wouldn't actually transact business on the Sabbath. That would have violated the law. Of course they wouldn't do that. But throughout the festivals, and as the festivals were ending, you know, profits were so high you couldn't possibly take all the holiday off. They'd go to Jerusalem or they'd go to Samaria and they'd have one of these festivals and it would last 10 days. And on the Sabbath, they'd stop working, sundown to sundown. But the rest of the time, rather than celebrating the provision of God, rather than rejoicing over the work of God and historically remembering God's work and his character, they're scheming all the while to make a buck. They sold less than they ought for more than they ought. So if you said, and if you look at verse uh, 5, in particular 5 and 6, the end of 5, let me say, and 6, what is, what, is, what is he talking about here? Give me an ephah of barley or give me two shekels of rice. Well, <clears throat> what he's going after here is they would say, the merchants would say, somebody come up to you and say, give me an ephah of barley. Okay, well, <clears throat> here, here's how much the ephah was in truth, but they may have added a little bit more to make the ephah heavier, so you had to give the merchant more money, and you got less barley. So the merchant made a much better deal. Think about it. Why do we have those stickers from the Department of Agriculture on two things in particular I thought of? Gas pumps, and what's the other one? When you go to Publix, and you you have your deli meat measured, there's a little sticker on there too. Right? Why is that? Because the state has paid people, in theory, who are objective, who have you know, objective scales that they weigh out so that when you're paying $3.19 for a gallon of gas, you're actually getting a full gallon. Well, in Israel, at this time, it was like you were actually getting a half a gallon, but they said, give me $3.19, I'll give you a gallon of gasoline. Really, you were getting a half a gallon. They were taking advantage of people who, of course, didn't know they were getting only a half gallon. Or, you know, I want a pound of tavern ham. Well, how do you know you're getting a pound? Well, because it says 1.00 right there. I watch them to make sure they put enough on there. Well, who's measuring that scale? They didn't have any of that. They didn't enjoy that, uh, well, justice. The scales, the balances were unequal. But if you go on, keep reading there in verse 6. Notice the people say, When will the new moon festival be over? And when will the Sabbath be over? So that we can do these things, right? Verse 6, That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. What's he talking about? Well, they would hold the poor in debt for things like a pair of sandals. And they would say, if you don't bring me the money in five days, I'm going to sell you and your family into slavery. And so for a pair of sandals, 
which was a relatively insignificant thing, not very expensive in that day, the creditors would sell those people into slavery. And in essence, that's how that sector of the population was disappearing. Go back to verse 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. In Hebrew, it literally says, make the poor disappear. You make them go into slavery, they no longer become people. As they silenced them, they eradicated them. And I was reminded this week of, of, a, of a guy named Dr. Kermit Gosnell, who ran an abortion clinic in Philadelphia up until a couple of years ago when he was caught and is now serving prison time. And he profited. He profited off of the killing of children. So in silencing them, he was able to eradicate them because he viewed them as non-humans. And furthermore, you go on to verse 6, they even tried to sell the chaff of the wheat. Now, I, I know that, you know, we live in Florida and we, 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 uh, we grow oranges here. We don't grow wheat. But if you know anything about wheat, chaff's the leftover stuff, right? This was the part that was swept up and thrown out after the ears of grain were sold. They would, they would literally sweep it up and toss it in the trash. And again, I'm reminded of something similar. Do you know why certain sectors of our, of our population, particularly African Americans, enjoy things like the liver and the gizzards and the heart of chicken? Because in the 19th century, when slavery was very much the, the order of the day, the wealthy folks would, of course, take the chicken breasts and the chicken thighs, the white meat and so forth, and whatever was left over of the chicken they would throw the scraps out the back door and the slaves could make their way over and have whatever was left. It's like trying to sell the chaff of the wheat. If you had no influence, then you became merchandise, you became an object, a means to make the highest profit. And this behavior in turn produces a class of people, back to chapter 4, that... God refers to as cows of Bashan. Bashan was known for its plump, shall we say, cattle. This is not a reference to the weight of the women. It's a reference to the fact that the women would lay around, do nothing, have people serve them, in particular their husbands. Okay? That's what he really goes after there. But if you go over to chapter 6, which we didn't get a chance to read... Chapter 6, verse 4, if you don't have it, just listen. He says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, who drink wine in bowls. That actually doesn't sound that bad to me. I mean, depending on what kind of day it's been, a cup might not do, right? You might need a bowl. But the point is, it's extravagant. It's, it's over the top. Right? But it's not only injustice by itself. What makes it all the more wicked is how obsessively observant the people were of religious ceremonies. And so look at, in particular, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. You've got religious devotion with no inner heart transformation. Their lips were honoring the Lord, but their hearts were far from him. And so he says to them, in a very mocking tone, and you could hear it as Susan was reading it, Come to Bethel and transgress. You hear that? He's saying, come and sin. 
to Gilgal and multiply sin. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. The religious devotion, see, was for themselves, not for the Lord. He, he says, bring your sacrifices, bring your tithes, not the sacrifice of the Lord, not the tithe to the work of the Lord. He's telling them, go above and beyond. Bring your sacrifice every day, your tithe every three days. Go, go, go above and beyond. It doesn't matter. Because you see, the people were participating to make themselves feel better. In fact, look at verse 5, so you love to do, O people of Israel. It's so ironic because they didn't love the Lord with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and their neighbor. What they loved was the system. The word that uh, Amos uses there implies covenant fidelity. So they had covenantally committed to the system, not to the Lord. They had become so committed to their sacrificial procedures that their faith no longer rested on the Lord. And it should remind you a little bit of the Pharisees. Okay? How did Jesus respond when he came into contact with the Pharisees? He, He sounded a little like this at times. Because the people were acting like Canaanites. Pagan gods allowed people to be personally immoral and unethical. You lived your life in different spheres. The religious sphere never really met the social sphere, which never really met the business sphere, and so forth, right? The people, the Canaanites, that is, could still be right with the gods if they kept the rituals and they did their duties at the proper time and in the proper way. Baal didn't care how you treated your slaves or whether you charged exorbitant interest to the people who were in debt to you as long as you got the sacrifice out at the appointed time, right? But that's not how Yahweh operated or expected his people to operate. Because Amos, as well as other prophets, insist that people who deny or trample on justice and try to worship God will not be accepted. The duty of justice to the afflicted is so central that if it's not fulfilled, God will not even accept the divinely ordained sacrifices and worship. I mean... Look at what he says in um, uh, chapter 5, verse 21. So maybe uh, two-thirds of the way down your sheet there. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. The duty of justice to the afflicted was so central that if it's not fulfilled... God will not even accept the divinely ordained sacrifices and worship. That's frightening. And I think it's worth asking ourselves, why am I here, as in here today? Why am I here? Because Amos says, if you're here for you, while the way you live your life results in the poor being trampled or injustice being done, and God as a result, then finds your worship, your attendance, your singing, your praying, an abomination. So let's look in more detail. 
uh, at God's response. Focusing in really on on chapter 5, those verses 21 to 24 and then 6 and 7. His reaction to Israel's ignoring and afflicting the poor is pretty striking. He says literally in verse 21 in Hebrew, it says, I will not breathe in the odor of your solemn assemblies. So it's as if, imagine the people going to the temple, they're doing their religious stuff, they're offering their sacrifices, which means they're burning animals, which means smoke is going up, and they would do that so that the aroma of the smoke would go up and the Lord would be pleased. He says, I'm holding my breath. I don't want to smell it. Now think for a second how costly this religious system was. Animals weren't cheap. And these people are regularly sacrificing burnt offerings, peace offerings. It appeared on the surface wholehearted, but it failed to please God. And God doesn't mince words when he reacts through the words of Amos. And why he reacts so strongly is directly tied to what he expects from his people. Look at chapter 5, verse 7 in particular. Okay? Uh, Leading up to that, let me read 6. He says, Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Amos 5.7 gives us a clue as to what was wrong in Israel with respect to two things, justice and righteousness. But Amos 5 verse 24 shows us what God expects in Israel. In terms of those two things. So look at 5.24. He says, let justice... I I don't want to breathe in your sacrifices. Take away from me the noise of your songs. But in contrast to that, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He says back earlier, that the people have turned justice into wormwood, as if to say, justice in Israel is bitter. When you taste it, it's sour, so to speak. God says justice should be pleasant and good, and instead, in Israel, right now, in this day, it's evil and corrupt. Not only that, but they've cast righteousness down to the earth. In other words, they've rejected a standard, a standard of behaviors being thrown out. Both of these are priorities to the Lord for his people because they're part of what defines him. And so he wants his people to be defined by that as well. Instead of hollow, duty-filled religion, God says let justice and righteousness be as free-flowing and regular and common and normal as a stream. Like waters of of a mountain spring that flow, again, Just regularly, common, normal, every day. Make justice and righteousness that typical of your life, Israel, he's saying. And several times throughout the book of Amos, in fact, at at, at various points in the Bible, the words justice and righteousness are paired together. They are the two, well, they're two of, let me say, the most important words in the Bible that describe the Lord and in turn should describe his people. You can't really talk about one without the other, okay? Kind of like law and order, or health and safety, or room and board. We typically put those two words together. Each word has its own meaning, but together they express a single idea. Thing is, they're not concepts you reflect on. They're actual things that you do. 
So let me take a look at each one uh, with you. Righteousness, according to the Bible, means straightness, something fixed, a norm, a standard by which other things get measured. It's like a state where things conform to what is right or expected. For example, if a husband is rightly relating to his wife and and a wife rightly relating to her husband, it would be accurate to speak of they have a righteous marriage or righteousness is is the state of their marriage. A judge who judges rightly, we would say, is a righteous judge. The scriptures, let me say. That's how the scriptures would define righteousness. Justice, according to the Bible, is a set of actions that are aimed at setting things right. It's a commitment to straighten out what's crooked. It's the fruit born out of a state of righteousness. And so, To judge or bring justice is to look at a situation that is wrong or oppressive, sometimes by confronting the wrongdoer, but almost always by vindicating and delivering those who've been wronged. Now listen, to act justly is to take upon yourself the cause of those who are weak in their own defense. And this is the statement. Justice is what needs to be done in a given situation if people and circumstances are to be restored to conformity with righteousness. Let me say that again. Justice is what needs to be done in a given situation if people and circumstances are to be restored to conformity with righteousness. If you see something crooked, justice is making your way into that situation to straighten it out so that it achieves a state of righteousness. The reason... God, through Amos, is so angry about Israel's failure to carry this out is because it's exactly what he did for Israel. Human beings aren't supposed to be enslaved, treated like objects. So what does God do? In the book of Exodus, he acts justly on behalf of the weak. Their cry comes up to him, Exodus chapter 3. He takes up their cause, and he rescued them in order to restore them. But not only that, the reason justice continues to this day, to be such a big deal to God is because of the gospel. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that in order to restore us to a state of righteousness, justice had to be carried out. God is righteous and is committed to righteousness. God is also just and committed to justice. The problem is, human beings are oppressed and weak and defenseless, corrupt, Because of our own sin. And so Jesus comes and intervenes and is judged in our place. Jesus receives justice so that we can in turn receive what? Mercy. Jesus receives justice so we can receive mercy. And God, through judging Jesus for our sin, restores our broken relationship. As Paul says in Romans 3 in our assurance of pardon, by faith we receive the righteousness of God. We are conformed to it. It begins to straighten us out from our crooked, corrupt ways. Every person, every person apart from Christ is spiritually bankrupt, powerless, poor, resourceless, and has to be rescued and provided for. And the most vulnerable in our society serve to remind us of who we are spiritually Fundamentally, as human beings, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the ones who are impoverished in spirit. We're reminded of that 
we have these people who fall into these categories among us to remind us that's who we are. If, as Paul says, all have sinned, no one has any right to look down on anyone else. And if, as Paul says, we're justified by his grace as a gift, no one has earned their restoration to a state of righteousness. The gospel demolishes any sense of pride. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would ask you, reflecting on these words from Romans 3, have you received the redemption found in Jesus Christ by faith? Do you you feel your powerlessness, your poverty of spirit, your weakness, your fear? I would invite you, as Amos does, to seek the Lord and live, to run to Jesus And as God promises in this book, the Lord, the God of hosts, when you do that, will be with you, not against you. Jesus unjustly endured the punishment that was justly due you and I. The justice God demanded for sin. And now, which takes us to the third point, he empowers us to become agents of justice. I was thinking about uh, trying to figure out a way to use that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or whatever that Marvel TV show is, but I couldn't. So I'm just going to keep going. What does it look like? What does justice practice look like? Well, let me give you a definition of a righteous or just person from a, a seminary professor that I had. He says this, A righteous person disadvantages themselves for the sake of the community. An unjust person advantages themselves for the sake of the community. And if you think about it like this, when justice and righteousness flow like a stream, when a stream begins to flow over something that was dry or it it eventually kind of bubbles over and changes its course or gets on land that didn't previously have a stream on it, what happens to the land? What happens to the landscape? It changes, right? Things begin to look different. And so when justice and righteousness flow, they will mold and shape the landscape as they flow. Let me give you a couple of applications of how I I think we can practice justice and change the local and the global landscape for the good of uh, God's great name. First, uh, I want to talk to you for a minute about coffee, something that many of you uh, drink regularly, uh, like me. Uh, If you don't drink it regularly, let me encourage you to start because it's really good, especially the uh, caffeinated part. Um, But have you ever thought about who grows your coffee? Who grows it? Well, by contrast, think for a moment about Florida's natural. Who grows the oranges in the orange juice that you drink? By the way, uh, if you don't drink orange juice, let me encourage you to start. So, all my... I I mean, I had food on my table growing up because of the citrus industry, so I, I can't help but... But, uh, but promote it. But, but who grows the oranges that become orange juice? Chances are you've probably never met an orange grower who is impoverished. Why is that? Because, thankfully, there's a set price that the market says a box of oranges is worth, and growers have to be paid that price, right? There are laws and protections in place that ensure that that process goes forward and that ensures a certain level of prosperity for citrus growers and indeed for the whole citrus industry, indeed for the state of Florida. So can we all just say thank you, Father, for giving us that, providing that to us 
That's a blessing. Now, if you've ever met a coffee farmer, chances are he's dirt poor, he can't afford for his children to attend school, and he lives in a shack on his farm. Now, why is that? Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, doesn't live in a shack on his farm. His children go to school. He's certainly not dirt poor. The world market price for a pound of coffee right now is about $1.70. And farmers, if ever, are paid that. Coffee is farmed in highlands or mountains, and so there's this middleman who drives up the mountain. Okay, He pays the farmer, for example, 10 cents a pound. He takes it down the mountain. He sells it to a buyer from, say, Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, or you know, 10,000 other companies you could think of. Uh, he sells it to that buyer for a dollar. Trouble is, the middleman doesn't go back up the mountain and return some of that money to the farmer. In that scenario, which happens all over the world, especially in poorer countries like Nicaragua or Ethiopia or Honduras, everyone is taking advantage of the farmer. That's the guy who's caring for and ensuring that the coffee trees are producing in the first place. You would have no coffee without the coffee farmer. Right? So how do we practice justice and disadvantage ourselves? Well, one way that we're trying to do that here at Redeemer is that the coffee we drink, that you drink if you've you've had any here, comes from Uganda, and it's purchased from a group called From Crop Crop to Cup. And what they do is they pay farmers two to three times the market rate for their coffee. So what does that mean? They, in turn, get the best stuff, right? And those farmers want to keep dealing with them. But it comes with a price, Disadvantaging yourself for the sake of the farmer means you pay more because they get paid more. And they're able to send their children to school. They're able to invest to make their farm better. And so as a result, we pay uh, approximately $12 to $13 a pound for the coffee that we get here. So it's costly. It's a big part of the budget. We drink a lot of coffee every year. But that's a very practical way that we're trying to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of another person. And that's also a practical way you and your family if you drink coffee, can practice justice. Secondly, and I'm almost done, in the Old Testament, landowners were were not to harvest all the way out to the boundaries of their fields. They were to save the edges for the poor, for the orphan, the immigrant. The laws enabled the poor to be self-sufficient, not by receiving a handout, but through their own work in the field, right? The landowner could have maximized the profitability of his fields by harvesting them completely, but God says, no, disadvantage yourself. Remember the poor and the needy. Well, in turn, a Christian business owner today could practice justice by not trying to squeeze every penny of profit out of their business, charging really high or maximum fees and prices to customers and then paying the lowest possible wage to the employee. Rather, they could pay the highest wages in the industry, ensure low to no turnover, charge lower prices that would, in effect, share the profits they're making with the employees and the customers, right? The owner has to disadvantage themselves to be a blessing to their workers, but in turn they end up blessing the entire community. A government, too, could practice uh, similar principles by enacting programs that encourage work and self-sufficiency rather than dependency. After all, the poor and the needy in the Old Testament still had to go harvest the edges of the fields. They were cared for, but initiative was required from them. Now, all that to say... This probably feels like hard work and overwhelming. Drinking from a fire hydrant, I don't mean it to feel that way. I'm sorry if it does. But I do want to say, in the words of one writer, doing justice requires constant, sustained reflection 
and circumspection. And if you're a Christian and you refrain from committing adultery or using profanity or missing church, but you don't do the hard work of thinking through how to do justice in every area of your life, then you're failing to live justly and righteously. God desires his people to be diligent in their care for the most vulnerable because it's there, it's in those moments when you are reminded that you, when you were the most vulnerable, the Lord stepped in and rescued you. Jesus Christ was disadvantaged to the point of death on the cross so that we could gain an advantage of life in him. And may we, this is my prayer, may we who have been declared not guilty and are being remade by the Holy Spirit, may we imitate that same work of our Savior so that, as Amos says here, justice would roll down and righteousness would flow and it would change our city and our world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do, uh, we do thank you. We do praise you and honor you and bless you. We're humbled by your mighty work of salvation, of disadvantaging yourself, of, of absorbing the just wrath that was due to us for our sin and in turn making us just, justifying us by your grace as a gift as we read earlier. And we pray that that truth in turn, that experience of grace would in turn make us a people who, as the prophet Micah will say uh, later on in the Old Testament, that we would be a people who do justice, who practice and love kindness, and walk humbly with you. We pray that you would come and do that among us so that we, in turn, as a people, might effect change in our city, bring this to our city, bring this to our area, and ultimately to the ends of the earth so that you would receive honor and glory and praise as a result. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The good news of this benediction is as you go from here, whatever crooked places, people, situations that you've got to face, uh, God's promise is he goes with you, with his righteousness that is yours by faith, having been justified freely through the redemption that is in Christ's blood. That's good news. Uh, It should empower you should remind you that as you go, you go with his righteousness. Uh, And so as we go together, we go with his righteousness to make our city in the places we find crookedness straight. So go with his blessing as you leave. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.